the uh, Thriller from Manila. Is that, mm. am, I, am I that guy? Didn't touch. <laughs> wow, your dad? Dad, yeah. <laughs> that's, for my, that's, for my, that's for my next of kin. There you go, that's, that's one, that one's out for the kids. Hi, I'm Derek Morrison from The Good Wine Shop. Welcome to a new episode of Bring Your Own. We were really fortunate to have a couple of my favorite winemakers from the USA join us during a recent visit to London. Rajat Parr and Pax Maley are responsible for some incredibly exciting wines made in California and Oregon. They brought a few bottles of wine from their cellars to share while we chatted about their wineries and careers. Raj and Pax joined myself along with London wine merchant and former sommelier Carolyn Branger from Flint Wines. Special thanks to the great team at Comptoir Café in Mayfair who hosted us for the filming of this episode. Comptoir Café is one of my favorite places to go in London for a glass of wine and you can find them on Instagram with the handle at Comptoir Mayfair. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to give a review online. Follow us on social media at BYO Podcast and share this episode with your friends. The full video version is available on YouTube and subscribe to the podcast to make sure you catch all future episodes. Thanks for coming today, guys. Um, let's go around the table quickly to start off with a bit of introduction. I'll start with you, Carolyn. So I'm Carolyn and I work for Flint Wines, which is a Burgundy and American specialist. Uh, I used to be somebody myself and then moved on to the dark side, as they call it. Uh, Pax? Uh, yeah, Pax Maley. Uh, I've got a couple of wineries in California. Wind Gap Wines, uh, Pax Maley Wines, and Agarda Wines. Uh, we're based in uh, West Sonoma County, a little town called Sebastopol is where the winery is. Um, and yeah, we make everything from Trousseau Gris to Cabernet Sauvignon. And uh, Raj? Yeah, Raj Alpar. So I live in Santa Barbara. So I have uh, uh, three wineries. One. Uh, one is Dumaine de la Côte, the estate vineyard, and then Sandy is the, the Nigos part of Dumaine de la Côte, uh, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir only. And then in Oregon, we have Evening Land Vineyards, uh, Seven Springs. So we pretty much only produce Chardonnay, Pinot, a little bit of Gamay. And then I have some, make some other fun varieties, but in very small quantities. Well, thanks to you guys for being here with us as well. And um, um, I know you guys had a, covered a few kilometers on your European adventure, and hopefully this is... Uh, Good addition to that. Um, I think it's you know I've 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 worked through wines for a, a, a bit of time in the in the UK and I've um, I find it really exciting to have you both here because what's a nice interesting contrast is you focus a lot primarily on Pinot Noir and Chardonnay and, and a few different terroir and um, as you as you reference in, when you're introducing yourself you've got kind of everything under the under the hood so yeah. uh, maybe talk a little bit about can you tell us a bit about what your what attracts you to your approach, your philosophy in those regards, in terms of focus and maybe experimentation? Yeah, I mean, but I, my career was in a, a sommelier, and I loved uh, uh, the wines of France, and specifically Burgundy, and, and just started making a little wine for fun, just to kind of see how, you know, what you can do, how you can, you know, if you can make fresh and zippy-style wines in California, and start playing around in different places, then settle down in, in San Vito Hills, and then eventually in... But all happened, there wasn't really a... It wasn't a goal to make wine, it just kind of happened by chance, and then slowly just things expanded, and, and we found a special piece of land, me and my partner Sashi, Mormon, and so we planted that, and that became Dumas de la Côte. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a... You know, Pax has a, a much longer history of making wines. For us, it's very new because we're also in a new place. You know, Santa Rita Hills is a very new appellation. Um, uh, you know, growing up uh, in India and then 
experience time in England. So I was like not exposed to wine. And then when I tasted wine, I went straight to Chardonnay and Pinot. So my epiphany wine was a Chardonnay. It wasn't anything else. So just been kind of trying to focus on that and kind of find two different places to make the same uh, style of wine, but of course different in two places. Right. right. Oregon and, and Santa Barbara. So what was the, that epiphany Chardonnay? Uh, 86 Ravenau Liclo. Yeah. That'll probably... In 96. I was 10 years old and the wine was 10 years old. And, wow. Yeah, it's pretty... Pretty cool. Have you gone back special. to it? Have you, have you had it since? Uh, yeah. Yeah, a few times since, but it's hard to find now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard to find. Um, Many Liclo. Yeah, I, I, but <laughs> my, my good, good friends I know and they see a bottle and if they can afford it, they, they save for me. But otherwise, it's... Uh, yeah, I think I've had it like three times since, so... Not, not three that. times more than more than most of us, so live vicariously through. But did it live up to the? I mean, it's always it's kind of one of those you're afraid to meet your For heroes sure. or go no, back no, to I, I still live Last up. time I had it was two years ago, in New York, and it was you know as transcendent. It was yeah, it was you know it, it was magical. Ten years old, and it was magical. I guess it was so cool. Yeah, thirty years old then. So yeah. Cool. So Pax, maybe tell us a bit more about uh, the genesis of uh, your wines, wineries, and philosophies? Well, I didn't grow up with wine either. I mean, you know, I think Calcutta probably has a, a better wine culture than the, the beaches of, of, of Sarasota, Florida. But, um, but I worked in restaurants and uh, was, uh, eventually became a sommelier and fell in love with wine. I moved to California, started working for a retail wine shop. And um, at that point, there was not a lot of people that were focusing on Syrah in California. And I'd always really enjoyed it, and I'd always, there wasn't a lot of Syrah that I had. I mean, they're, they're kind of the bigger names now. Um, there wasn't a lot of, you know, um, at least I, that I knew of, a lot of kind of the smaller kind of family-type wineries. Uh, but all of the big boys were wines that I drank quite a bit in my house. Um, just because they were not near as much exp as expensive as they are now, of course, but uh, it just seemed in California that nobody was focusing on Syrah. There was uh, Pinot Noir producers that would make a bit of Syrah, and there was Cabernet producers that would make a bit of Syrah, but nobody was really kind of hanging their hat on it, and, and I just kind of... Uh, well, when I, well I, I should back up. When I, when I was hired for the job at Dean & DeLuca, I had, I'd had never tasted California wine. I kind of lied my way into the job. Um, but the job was to turn it into a 100% a, a California-only program. And how I kind of attacked that was, I was like, okay, well, for, in order for this to make, under, to make sense to me, I need to figure out where the Santemilion of California is, because that's where we're going to buy our Merlot from. And I need to figure out where the Saint Estef is, because that's where we're going to buy our Cabernet Sauvignon from. And I need to figure out where the Loire is, because that's where we're going to figure, you know. And so kind of going through these motions, I realized that the Syrah that tasted... Um, the most uh, like the great wines of the Northern Rhone Valley that I enjoyed were from the north coast of California. And so with, you know, with that kind of idea in mind, I found a vineyard or two and started making Syrah in 2000. And uh, we made Syrah, at, at one point the Pax brand had uh, 18 different bottlings of Syrah. Um, and uh, right when we were peaking with our 18 bottlings was right when the market was not buying Syrah. Uh, and so um, at, that, I, at that point I created, I, I took, 
I separated the vineyards by the coastal wines and then the wines that were a little bit more warm and created the Wind Gap uh, winery with those coastal Syrahs. The Syrahs, I mean, even, even, even you know, people have, don't remember that when, when we started PAX, we had 12% alcohol Syrahs and we had 15.5% alcohol Syrahs that sometimes hit 16. But the point is, um, we had always had those vineyards and we'd always had those wines. And then in 2006, we decided to separate them from the PAX brands and to have uh, one brand that had these very light, savory, lower, naturally lower alcohol Syrah, uh, and then the Pax brand would keep the, the fuller, richer ones. Uh, and that's kind of where we are today. We have the two brands, uh, and they both have a little bit of Syrah at this point. Um, and um, a lot of the same vineyards we've been working with since the very first year. So it's been quite a, quite a journey. I just had a, um, for tasting, I picked up a few bottles of the 03 Cuvée Kelty. It's interesting that that's the one wine you have. It was, it was, it was the one, one wine that kind of defined the direction we kind of stuck with. 100% whole cluster, um, no new oak barrels, and uh, using you know, the, the, the plots that kind of were a little bit more fresh and lively. So Cuvée Kelty 2003 um, is kind of where I am today was created, was started. That's really cool. Yeah. One, I mean, you see the, the, the resurrection of the label and the branding, too. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that was, it's kind of cool to see. I have both the both Syrahs on the shelf, so it's kind of, you know, it's, it's really, I don't know. Yeah. It's cool to see that, yeah. <laughs> that it's back there because, you know, for people who don't know, I mean, you kind of have to connect them to the wind gap to, yeah. to, the, to the brand. But now seeing a bit of continuity is pretty, pretty neat. But. It's interesting. We will be at a tasting pouring the wind gap wine, and we'll be like, oh, we've got a, a Pax wine on the table. They're like, oh, real cool. We've never heard of it. It's like, oh, wow, that's refreshing. When you started to kind of venture out with some other varieties as an experiment, and or is it worth fruit you were sourcing, or was it with vines that you had planted, or, or what was? Um, how did you kind of start to branch out to some of the more esoteric? You know, grapes? it really started with um, a, a, the wine and the grape is called Trousseau Gris. Uh, we were making these uh, savory Syrahs. Uh, we were making a skin fermented Pinot Gris, uh, and we had a Chardonnay from the Brousseau Vineyard, which is planted in, in uh, you know, a granite and calcare. And so it's a very lean, very, very crisp, very kind of unlike what was the normal then in California, which is becoming quite more common today. And, um, and I was, and, and, and we started Wind Gap as kind of a boondoggle. You know, it was like we had this brand that was making these Syrahs that was just, uh, very successful, and then the other brand was just going to be like, let's just make these really like interesting things that are going to be a little bit more fascinating. And then we had the, the kind of the breakup with the Pax brand, and then the Wind Gap became my job, and so we kind of had to look at it a little bit differently. And I saw an ad in the in the in the in the kind of the Wine Country Classifieds that said that there was Trousseau Gris grapes available for you know, uh, very, very inexpensive. And I had sold the wine at Dean and DeLuca and the gentleman who owned the vineyard would deliver them in his old uh, Volkswagen van. He would pull up and he'd be like, oh, here, taste this wine. And we'd be like, oh, it's delicious. He'd be like, you want to buy some? We'd be like, yeah, we take a couple cases. And he's like, okay, how many? We'd be like, I don't know, I don't know, well, how much is it? And he's like, I don't know, I'll probably do three or five. And he'd be like, okay. And he'd like go out to his van and like, like carry him into the room. We were like, oh, okay, well, we'll take them now, I guess. And so we bought the Trousseau Gris, and 
it was an inexpensive grape variety um, that we could use uh, in our concrete tanks before we needed them to be turned over for Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and the Syrah and the other things that we had. So it just fit very, very well with what we were trying to do. And it was something that we were able to get onto the market quickly uh, for not a lot of money uh, while it was very fresh. It had an interesting name and it really kind of started the whole thing. Uh, you know, like this is okay. It doesn't have to say Chardonnay on the label. It can be something like something that is nobody has ever heard of. I, I mean, I, yeah. um, and so Truce Agree was kind of what kicked that off for us. Well, I think that's a good segue into talking about like kind of the countercultural at the time, you know, pre iPod era. I mean, yeah. it was especially in the early 2000s. I mean, it was not so in vogue to be doing kind of these finessed. Um, um, lower alcohol in the New World wines in the same way that it is now. I mean, yes. um, well, maybe we'll come back to that Why, uh, because we're, we're, we're annihilating this delicious, right. delicious sparkling that, uh, that Raj has brought. So uh, before we get into some of the California stuff, Raj, why don't you tell us a bit about uh, the, uh, the bottle you brought? And, oh, yeah. Uh, so, so, so Pax and me usually go to France once a year mm -hmm. at least and kind of, you know, taste around. And this year we went to the Rhone and then we ended up at Savoie. It was our first time. And... Uh, we went to see this gentleman, Dominique Beloir, uh, whose wines I've admired and drank for a number of years. And we went to see him, and uh, I was in a wine shop, and they had this 14, uh, this 14 Mont Blanc. So the vines are just across from Mont Blanc, basically, a high elevation. The grape is Granger. He owns the only, he's the only producer who bottles a Granger. He has. Nine ten hectares, and he makes some fizz from, uh, uh, yeah, sh champagne style. But he he doesn't put cremant. It's it's a brut zero from the Savoie, so limestone soils. Uh, Twenty fourteen current vintage. Yeah, it's I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty cool. I mean, completely esoteric, and you know he, he's he's biodynamic and you know natural for the most part and. But it's a pretty uh, example of how uh, you can be all that and still produce a wine which is completely full of energy and uh, pretty special. It's so chiseled. I mean, it's just so tense and nervy on the palate. Chiseled describes the uh, the appellation, the, oh, where, where uh, we were. It's extreme. And he's, it's he himself, he's a very... Uh, he's also very chiseled in a way. He's very like, yes. you know, it's 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 pretty cool, pretty amazing to see a masteric grape grown, you know, grown pretty much on the, you know, the Alps. Yeah, snow-covered slopes everywhere around us. I mean, these incredibly steep vineyards with these tiny old vines that are just like kind of clinging to the side of this mountain and in, in this uh, yellow. Um, this yellow clay, it's, it's amazing. Uh, Pretty wild. Yeah. So have you, have you guys thought of doing any sparkling in any of the appellations you work in? I make a little bit. We, make, we do a, a, a pet mat uh, and also some Mette Champenois uh, Chardonnay Pinot. A little bit, just, just, just for fun. Not, nothing, you know, just small quantities. Just just to drink and share and that kind of stuff. Nothing, nothing too big and commercial. We give the, the interns some juice to make some pet nat every year. Um, and then I throw it away a couple months after they leave. Um, not because it's not good, just because it's been forgotten and it explodes and it's just, <laughs> um, but um, 
yeah, no, we don't, I don't uh, commercially make, I, and I drink, a, my wife and I uh, drink a tremendous amount of sparkling wine, whether it's, uh, we're lucky enough to drink something from, from Azor or something from, from Champagne, we drink a lot of sparkling wine. Any, any particular, particular favorites? Um, I'm a big fan of the, the wines from Jerome Prevost. Um, I drink a lot of those. Roz teases me uh, often about every, it. Every time you're together, every single it's time. Like a bottle, you if it's there, it's going to be crushed. Like I see a bottle right yeah. now. It's yeah, a pretty, it's pretty it's high percentage is going to be. Sitting, it's right in your eyeline too. Yeah, no, it's yeah. literally. Yeah, this is yeah. like it's meant it's to be. You. Yeah, it's meant yeah, to be. Yeah, we're going to smash one of those for sure. Yeah, is it like the closer to the beginning? Is that your kind of go-to or a facsimile? If you can, do you have a preference over the two? I, mean, I, I, I prefer the, the beginning. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, I think that the facsimile is a, a gorgeous bottle of, yeah. of wine, but. Given the choice, I would drink that. For sure, it's and, and, like, and it's, it's like, like a hug. I don't know. Yeah, I, I because it. because we know him quite well, and he's such an amazing human being, and just such a great guy. And I think that just—it is true. I mean, the wine is great. There may be some as good or better. Doesn't matter. But to drink a wine, a great wine from a great person who you know, that experience is far exceeds just. A great wine and an asshole. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I did not say that I think that is the best champagne on the planet. No, no. It is it's the it, it is the champagne that I want to drink every day. So, Carolyn, why don't you uh, tell us about the bottle you brought tonight and uh, give us all a taste? Um, so, the bottle I brought tonight um, is uh, rosé made of uh, Mouvelle grape variety, uh, and it comes from uh, Happy Canyon in uh, Santa Barbara. It's made by the guys at Liquid Farm, um, Jeff. Um, Pam and Nikki. 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 Yeah. So yeah, I really like what they do because I like their philosophy and the way they want to work. Uh, they uh, they try to bring what's underground and um, above ground uh, together in a bottle. Um, it's all about um, trying to be more mineral and uh, surfing on that trend that we were talking about earlier. I was I have a question about that later, but trying to bring California to a level where it's more about uh, the soil. Um, I think that's my vision as just a consumer and, uh, and, and working for a wine merchant, but um, I think it's been a, a big shift where um, California has come up to understand more and more their soil and um, how they work and the weather patterns and um, more the terroir basically and uh, make wines which are more in elegance, more in minerality, using less oak, and uh, open up to the world and the different techniques that are done around the world. And, uh, and we come to that. Um, Mauvelle is one of those grape varieties you don't see, you don't hear much of in California. Um, and uh, as a rosé, even less. Um, and here I like the wine because it's, um, it's savory. It's not, it's not a sweet style of rosé. Uh, it's not over-extracted. Um, so they were one of the, they along with both of, uh, both of you guys were Involved with uh, the in pursuit of balance tastings, or yeah. which is that which is is uh, been retired. Uh, maybe you guys can tell us a little bit about what it was like at the beginning when that this kind of uh, if you call it a movement or uh, a, an evolution or transition to these the pursuit of balance or this this style of winemaking in California. What was it like, and what have you noticed in the kind of the last decade decade plus of uh, how the markets evolved or how the what the, so the perspectives of the producers? Has evolved. Have you noticed a shift um, on the ground, or is it still very divided into two camps? I was um, 
I've never missed one of the events. I did every single one of them. I was invited uh, by Raj and Jasmine to be a part of it. And um, I thought it was a great, uh, a great idea. It was a great place to be. Um, I could walk around that room and walk up to any producer and have wine poured in my glass and drink it. It doesn't happen at a lot of uh, tastings in California. Not in tastings in California, but tastings of California wines, for me at least. Um, it was very special in that regard. It was, and I think the strength, the, you know, the, the group of wineries together made for a very strong uh, defense, or not defense isn't the right word, of, 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 it really solidified the, the idea. If you go to a tasting and there are a lot of big traditional California brands and there's one IPOB type winery, remember, you may taste the wine and not really kind of grasp what's kind of going on. It may be refreshing or it may be something else. It may come across as very positive for you. It may come across as very negative for you, but it would definitely stand out for one reason or another, good or bad. But when the, room, the wines are all in the room together, it's, there's, a, there's a cohesion, there's a, there's a... And you know, California is very young. I mean, we are still making mistakes. Um, we're still learning. Um, the, the big, the, the, I think the, the most unfortunate part of, about the, I mean, there's a lot of positive, mo way more positive that came out of it than, than any of the negative. But I think it, one of the things that really very much disappointed me about my fellow um, wine producers in California was the fact that they felt, I mean, every, everybody's opinion of balance, it's kind of a, kind of a, kind of a controversial word, kind of a, a word that really can't be defined. Everybody's opinion of that is different, clearly, but everybody felt like they, sh they deserved to be a part of it and when they were not invited to be a part of it. And it wasn't, you weren't invited if you, you know, hung out with the right people or lived in the right neighborhood. It was all about the wines being blind tasted by a panel of people that had nothing to do with the people that were pouring the wine. It was a, it was a separate group of people, which Raj can tell you more about, but the wines were chosen purely by how they performed in a blind tasting and how this group of individuals, again, that had nothing to do with the people that were promoting the event and, and, and doing the event. And so it was very disappointing when we would hear from our friends that, oh, you know, it's like, it's this or it's that, or, you know, there, there's an implication that if you're involved in this, your wines are better. It's obviously not the implication. It distracted a bit from maybe the it did distract point from. of it all. Yeah, me. and that's the reason that we kind of retired it, because it was just too much pressure for no reason. The tasting was organized for the first time. PAX was a part of the first, was merely a tasting of like-minded producers, merely. Yeah. That was the first one. It was, we, we were only going to do a tasting with the producers, but then we realized we have to have to rent classes, we have to rent table, tablecloth, space. So then we said, okay, let's open it to the public. So it, first of all, we never call it a movement. It's not a movement because it's not an agenda. Right, right. It's just like-minded people. and. It was so highly energized by everyone there that you know, they became kind of a fireball. It must have been pretty. I can just imagine how energizing it would be when you kind of get some of these, a group of people making wines kind of just 
dedicated to their kind of your philosophies and, yeah. and what you believed were the wines that you wanted to make or interpret and you kind of put all those people in a room and it just kind of must have just... And, you know, what's important about that is we're talking about, you know, the, there's people making wines that kind of believe in the same thing. I mean, you know, there's, <clears throat> there's a lot less winemaking involved in wines like these, right? Then in theory, these wines are more in line with the great wines of Europe or the great wines of anywhere else. And the, the, the idea was is that these wines take a little bit more courage. These wines take, because they're not big and rich and extracted and over the top, like, the, like California kind of hung its hat on or Parker kind of like made, and that is the safe way to do it. That is the safe way to sell your wine. That is the safe way to make your wine. Here's, here's a group of people that are like, well, you know, I'm not going to use 100% new oak barrels. I'm not going to pick at 16% alcohol. And that takes courage. And if you're by yourself doing that, it's very lonely out there, trust me. But if you have a group of people there that believe in what you're doing and you believe in what they're doing, and you're presenting yourself to an audience that is like, wow, these are the best wines we've ever had from California, there's something there. There were three producers in the first tasting, and they continue, who were, who were around for 30 years, haven't changed Calera or Bon Climat, yeah. Mount Eden. They've yeah. made the same wine since in some cases the 60s and 70s and... I remember reading somewhere, I think it was Noble Rot a few years ago, it was like uh, an 82 Jim Clendenin Chardonnay was like oh, what oh, for yeah. you that was like... For sure, yeah, Jim's opened them a few times and... That was what made you want yeah, to make wine? Yeah, no, it was, yeah, I, of course, I made the, my first five vintages with Jim, 04 till 08. Uh, no, it's, you know, I mean, one of the greatest stories of, I'll, I'll never forget is, I'm sitting having dinner at Becky Wasserman's house with Becky and a few other people. And Becky opens a few bottles of white burgundy from the 90s, and they were, you know, so serious. And blah, blah. So Becky's like, oh, yeah, I have a bottle of Jim's wine. Let's open that. He opened an 87 Santa Barbara County Chardonnay, just a basic wine, which was probably back then maybe. 15 bucks? No, yeah. that, that's 89, maybe 10. 10, yeah. Whatever. It was fresh and vibrant, and we drank the whole bottle in like less than an hour. And you're like sitting in you're sitting in Burgundy at one of the most amazing human beings' house. She's she's an amazing cook, and you're drinking a basic Santa Barbara wine, and you're like. And you got a bunch of brown colored uh, Grand Cru yeah, stuff. Well, not I, a bunch. I mean, yeah, but, no, but not, not to compare. No, of course, not comparing Burgundy and California at all. Not, that's, there's a beauty. But in but, that but it's just like you 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 have something which you know Jim is my mentor and like my big brother, so you know, it made me happy to be there. Someone who taught me and spent a lot of time with me, and you know, so it was amazing just the feeling to have a wine from, you know, a basic wine from, from uh, a young Appalachian yeah, for the yeah. most part. So it's, it was definitely uh, encouraging that, that it's, it's a good place to uh, grow Chardonnay because that's, that's our living, that's how we live. <laughs> it simply shows that uh, those people who are gathered in, in the same room, they just simply understood what's going on in the vineyard and in the terroir and they, they got it. They, they don't have to go by the group, the book of winemaking yes. in order to make yeah. a wine. They, they simply make a good wine as much as, as what they can send, depending on what they... You got to learn something, I guess. Yes. You need a bit yeah. of and yeah. teaching lessons on how to make wine, but still, once you get the essentials, the core of what you need to make a good wine, yes. 
Yeah, well, you can. Uh, for me, that's the, that's that's how I understand it. Like you go, you see the vineyards, you, or you see the land, and then yes, but that's a, that's a very romantic view of things. Which romance is one of the most important parts of wine. Don't get me wrong, but there's also the reality of wine, and the reality is that if you are a chef and you burn the chicken, you put a pull a new one out of the fridge and you you recook it. If you are a if you are a winemaker and you totally, I mean, so. There's things that you do that are maybe safe. There's things that you do that make sure that you will sell the wine. And it's not the right way. I'm not saying it's the right way. It's the safe way. There's a lot of investment on the line. There's, you know, yada, yada, yada. There's nothing, there's no, there's no inherent trait in a human being that walks onto a vineyard and says, oh, the best way to make a wine from this vineyard is this. The only way that comes is from tasting and understanding burning chickens. Yes, yes. Yeah, I've burned a lot of chickens in my life, let me tell you. The word winemaking, you know, you're French. There's no word called winemaker in France. You know, no. it's a wine grower. So, so in the cellar, the only way, the, the two major things how wine is made, in my mind, is picking and bottling. When to pick, when to bottle. And everything in the middle should be nothing. It should be nothing, because in my, in my humble opinion, and that's our philosophy, that's what Tax and me, you know, we travel together, we drink together, we you know, spend time evaluating wines in a, in a very basic way, and after all these years of spending time and tasting and talking and traveling, we realized that all those things of the winemaking don't matter. What matters is when you pick it, when you bottle it. The rest, of course, the most important part is before picking it, because to figure out how to farm it, how to prune it, you know, how to manage canopy, whatever, everything, that. But those, you have a, you have a bigger window of planning than that moment when the grape is exactly as you want it. Yeah, you, there's nothing you can do to make up for picking early or picking late, yes? There's nothing you can do for, you know, over-oxidizing a wine and bottling it too late, or, or, or on the other hand. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do during elevage, the upbringing, but as long as you have a cold cellar and you have the discipline to stay away from your barrels, everything will be fine. Negligent control. <laughs> it's the confidence to understand that I don't have to pick it late in order to make a good wine. We make Syrah that we harvest at 17, 18 bricks. They're very ripe, they're very full, they're very spicy, they're very proper Syrah. I mean, the first time I picked below 24 bricks was a really big deal. And then the first time I picked below 23 bricks was a very big deal. The first time I didn't have a vineyard that got to 20 bricks, it was a very big deal. Now, it's not a big deal because I know that the thing in my mind that told me that I had to pick at a certain fruit level or ripen, or measurement of ripeness level was what I needed to do in order to make a wine that I could sell. Once that, once you're over that. Once you stop being worried about selling the wine. Once, yeah, once you stop worrying about selling the wine, everything becomes really... You know, it's, it's, we could easily kind of put a line down in the sand, but. I think there's still lots of producers out there and there's lots of wine drinkers who, there's still a segmentation of taste. I mean, some people make wine, you can make wines of integrity of massive wines that are not wines that I would ever want There's a segmentation of music and movies and nothing, everything should not taste the same. They should not. I mean, I mean, I drink more Beaujolais than any, almost any, Beaujolais and Centrus have than any red wine at home. And I buy an average for my own consumption, 
between five and 10 cases of Beaujolais a year of one vintage, different producers in different formats. In 15, I only bought one, yeah. one bottle. Yeah. Because it was continuing to, because it it's, it's not my style of vintage. Yeah. Even for my favorite producers, it's just, it, it's just not my style. It's just like... It's a great example. Yeah, it's, no, totally. I mean, sometimes the vintage is what, I mean, the vintage is what the vintage is, right? I mean, yeah, and... So, uh, Pax, why don't you tell us a bit about the wine that you brought tonight and give us a taste. Uh, interesting stuff. Um, we uh, were lucky enough to, I mean, maybe you've met Eduardo before. No? no, no. So we we met him last night. Had dinner with Eduardo. He shares our importer uh, with us. Uh, this we, we share the same importer. Sorry, that's the correct way to say that. Uh, Eduardo Acosta, uh, who is uh, in uh, now based in Sicily. Um, we had dinner with him last night. Lunch with him today, and we were walking over here to grab a bottle of wine for today. And and uh, we agreed that this was a really fun thing, um, something I've never had before, uh, but really liked the person and really like um, kind of what they're all about. And, um, and so this is probably, I could say, my first Manila Bianco that has been, um, uh, I just, Eduardo's actually upstairs right now and he just told me that uh, it's uh, four different uh, Clemonts separate vineyards. They all have a different blend of regional grape varieties with the, with the emphasis being the, the majority of the grape variety being vanilla. Uh, there's Caracante and Cacerato and, and other uh, Sicilian whites. Uh, there's even some uh, bit of red in some of the vineyards. Rio Capucho that is pressed with the whites. Um, the wines are, uh, spends about five days on its skins uh, and then it's pressed into big uh, barrels. Uh, where it ages for eight months and it's bottled. So a tremendous amount of, and Manila uh, is known for a, be, as being a very high acid grape. It was a grape that was used in Sicily for the production of, um, of uh, what's the, uh, not Madeira. Marsala. Marsala, thank you, thank you. The uh, Thriller from Manila? Is that, mm. am, I, am I that guy? Did dun dun. <laughs> wow, your dad? Dad, yeah, <laughs> that's, for my, that's, for my, that's for my next of kin. There you go, that's, that's one, that one's out for the kids. I mean, what I love about all the wines you've tasted, they're all, they're, I mean, they're all eminently drinkable. Yes. But they're, they're so much energy. Yes. Um, and this is definitely got a lot of textures on the palate, but it's, you, know, you can feel a bit of that skin contact. But it's so, again, so precise, the saline. It's just yes. An important uh, point is, you know, a lot of people don't drink near as much wine as, as, as us, you know, uh, when I'll say us, you know, sorry for grouping you with Raj and I, but... Um, well, we do drink a lot of wine as well. Yes, of course, that's my point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I mean, we, we drink wine, yeah? We don't, um, you know, it's not about the, a one moment tasting or it's like one, it's not, it's not our Snickers bar, it's not a dessert. It's yeah. not like we have one bottle of wine and it's like we need it to be everything at all moments and it needs to be sweet, it needs to be, I mean, I drink a lot of different wines, and because of that, I gravitate towards wines that are like this. So you make you're making Shannon now as well in your yes, past label. Is yes. that is that new grape that you've for bottling, or have you made any? I've never seen any Shannon from you in the past. No, fourteen was our first. Uh, we didn't release it to the public. It was just kind of an in-house kind of experiment for friends and family. And fifteen was the first real uh, go at it. Um, yeah, turned out nice. Uh, it's actually Mendocino. It's old vines. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, there's not, um, there's not a lot of old vine Chenin Blanc anywhere. Uh, there's some in South Africa. There's a tiny bit in the Loire. And there's a very tiny bit in California. We have one of these vineyards that was planted in the 40s, which is very unique. Uh, it's always been farmed organically. It's planted in this light uh, volcanic soil, which is a very acidic soil. Uh, the wine is, um, 
it's quite fresh, but it has a you know a texture to it, a, an oiliness. It has a it tastes like Chenin Blanc, which um, <laughs> is is a pretty. It's not the best Chenin Blanc in the world. It's not even close. Um, but it's proper, uh, and I think we'll get better uh, at making it. And I think. Uh, um, that it's an interesting and it, we're able to buy the grapes uh, for, for very little money and able to to uh, produce the wine and, and sell it. Uh, it's it's under $30 American, well under 30, I think it's 24 or $25 American, so it's probably not that much more here. Um, so I have a question about the wine growers. Yes. Because it's, I mean, I'm not asking for the secrets, but um, there are no secrets. No, but you know, you say very old vine of Shuna, like people have been planting vines since the 40s and uh, uh, growing them uh, organically. Like, where are those people? Where, where were they hiding all this time? Yeah. And how come that we're finding them only now? And yes. how did they make a living out of it so far? Why did they didn't plant, make well, the wines themselves? Since you asked the question, uh, great story. <laughs> um, the vineyard. <clears throat> that we use for the, the Pax Chenin Blanc, the 2015, which is here uh, in the market, is called Buddha's Dharma. Buddha's Dharma is the name that the Buddhist monks that um, live and own the city of 10,000 Buddhas, which is the actual name of the city in Northern California. Um, it's the largest settlement of Buddhists in America. And they, um, I, I don't know the exact year that the, uh, that the city was founded, but they purchased this vineyard that kind of fortifies the, the, the walled city of the city of 10,000 Buddhas. And that is, they've named it Buddha's Dharma. And Buddha's Dharma is a collection of, um, of all sorts of things that were being planted in the 40s. Carignan, Morvedra, Petit Syrah, Zinfandel. It's like the monks of the new world. I mean, well, they didn't the new plant, times. They didn't plant the vineyard. Okay. Uh, the vineyard was planted in the 40s. Uh, they, and, it, and they founded their city here. This vineyard was around it. They ended up buying the vineyard at, in the 60s. So the vines were 20 plus years old when they bought the vineyard. They used the, these grapes for juice because they have a school, they have residents, uh, and there's there was and this is you know something that's been told to me. So I don't know how how true it is, but it's the story that I know that the the. The Buddhist religion prohibited them from selling the grapes for the production of alcohol. Um, and so um, I think in 2014 or 2013 they sold a little bit of grapes and by 2015 they decided they were going to sell all of the grapes in order to help finance the construction of something mm -hmm. on the, on, in, in the city. Uh, and so now we buy grapes from them. We buy almost, the, not all of the grapes, but we buy a, a large piece of all of the grape varieties on this vineyard. And because of that we get a little bit of the Chenin Blanc as well. Um, and so, so to answer your question, um, had these grapes been on the market, on the open market, there probably wouldn't have been large gaps in buyers uh, as things came up and down and they probably would have been pulled out by now. But because they were not selling these on the open market, um, they're still around today. And that is our goal. We make a, the reason I buy all of these different red grape varieties is for a wine that I make under the Wingap brand uh, called Swaff. Uh, Swaff meaning thirst and, 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 and French and, and we, we harvest Valdegui and Carignan and Mouvedra and Petit Sirah and Zinfandel at very low sugar. We pick them in 18 bricks and we, we put them through maloact, or I'm sorry, uh, carbonic maceration in concrete tanks. Uh, we press it very early. There's very little skin contact. There's very little maceration. The wines are very glue-glue and uh, we bottle it early. And that, that, the idea there is that we call it a name called Swaff. We can buy 
hopefully the market embraces the wine and we can continue to buy all of these old vine things and keep them in the ground and keep the diversity because there are very famous wine critics that have said as soon as, as recently as five years ago that these, there shouldn't be my, wine made from these grape varieties anymore, that there should only be great wines made from Cabernet Sauvignon and Chardonnay. And I mean, these are, these are, these are horrible words to hear because- The old, the old vines are around for sure. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's lots of old vines. We, I, I was in Tenerife with, with Roberto and Alfonso from Enminate and, and I came back and I was in the airport, I came out of the immigration, and I called my friend Tegan Pasalacqua from Turley and Sandlands. I said, Tegan, is there any pais anywhere? He called me right back, he said, oh, okay, I'll call you back. He said, oh yeah, I found a vineyard. You and me will split the, split the, split the vineyard. I said, where is it? It's up in Amador, it's planted in 1854. <laughs> so, you know, there's vineyards, I mean, I mean, this is just you looking for it. I mean, there's other vineyards we had, it's, you know, uh, you know, Aaron Jordan has the new Zinfandel yeah. project day, and he has some old vine. You know, there's, there's these vineyards are there, but, but what happens is sometimes these old vineyards, uh, you know, they have some variety which, you know, they either make sweet wine or raisins or someone just buys them for bulk wine production. So they never get recognized. California has all these things, but if everyone just planted that to whatever else, Cab or Pinot or I mean, even for you, be hard pressed to find some Syrah in lots of places. And too, shoot, shoot, shoot. There was a tremendous amount of Syrah that was pulled out in around 2008, 2009. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you, so a lot of people could tell you that it was most of the Syrah that was not as good, and so it, 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 you know it, that it, we're better off. And there is a very good argument for that that the vineyards that the really great vineyards you know um, are still around, and the people that were not committed. Um, you know, it, it is being pulled out and something better can be planted there with there. But of course, in that happening, there's definitely some great vineyards that were lost. Um, so I'll just for you guys a little bit of the uh, Roti Cellars, Little G uh, 2014 Grenache is what I brought today. I wanted to bring something from another spot in the kind of Western U.S. that we, that we hadn't really talked about today. And um, I really, so this is from, from Walla Walla. And, um, and Sean's wines, he grows a lot in the Rocks District, in the Milton Freewater Rocks District of sub-AVA of Walla Walla. Okay. And I just, um, I fell in love with wines from Cayuse uh, a few years ago, and I've just ever since been fascinated with that um, area because it's very rare that you find kind of new appellations that uh, to kind of get jazzed about. I mean, you guys obviously working kind of the boots on the ground, but um, um, being on this side of the Atlantic, it's... Uh, um, there aren't too many new spots, and I, I was just fascinated with uh, Christoph Baron's story about mm -hmm. driving on his way to Willamette or from Willamette and looking, and then stumbling upon this hill of rocks and getting out of the car. You know, it's just such a romantic cliche sure, movie scene to run out there and um, discover this terroir. And you know, Walla Walla is so sandy in so many spots that uh, to find this kind of um, um, abandoned field of uh, um, basalt rocks um, was really, I thought, it was really cool. I mean, to think that that's so, such a recent. A recent discovery, really, in, in terms of uh, um, an appellation. I've, I've always been fascinated to watch that, and so I discovered the Roti Cellars wines soon thereafter. And Sean Boyd, who spent some time at Gramercy Cellars as the assistant okay. winemaker, when he, I think, uh, he was a geologist, and um, he was on like a gardening leave or sabbatical, and um, had been a fine lover of, uh, uh, he's obsessed with wines from from Rhone Valley, especially Northern Rhone, and. Um, 
while he was uh, on the Guardian Leave, he got involved with some of the other producers in Walla Walla, and I think he was make, made his initial vintages at Gramercy Cellars, and okay. um, so I think he knows. Yeah, I think he's he's pretty tight with those guys. I could be completely wrong. They have no idea they hate each other, but um, th that's the story as I remember it. And um, um, you know his his uh, cliche or cheesy mission statement is old world wines from new world vines, and you know um, all of his his approach is kind of. Um, very little new oak and, and um, you know working kind of as hands off as possible in the same kind of manner we're talking about and um, this is uh, this is actually not quite in the rocks the Grenache it's um, somewhere on the Columbia uh, Columbia River Valley but it's on a high altitude overhanging on the river oh cool and um, um, yeah, definitely in touch with them yeah. And so, you know, it's, you know, it's uh, 14 is a, a massive vintage uh, there and Walla Walla is always hot um, so kind of hot on hot um, but uh, I, I've, I've always really in, enjoyed his wines, and, and um, you know I think uh, you know you see Christophe Baron's <laughs> wines from Cayuse, and they're you know they're very you know unique wines, and some of them uh, I enjoy more than than other cuvées. But uh, I just thought it was cool to highlight uh, a sub AVA in a, in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a that I think is going to be really interesting to watch, and is is interesting to watch for a certain style of wines, and. Um, you know, it's uh, just highlights and epitomizes for me still the the youth, the youthfulness of uh, um, of the states. I mean, of the western of the western coast, really. I mean, right. think of uh, how much land there's still to be discovered and, and uh, more chickens to burn. I love that. Sorry, I keep going back to your <laughs> burnt chickens. It's just such a great analogy of you know, yeah. it's you you think of how much time there's ahead to kind of discover what's going on there. Exactly. Um, and uh, for people to get things wrong and get things right and, and see where we are. So I think it's. Uh, it's cool to see that there's still so many more terroir that uh, are yet yeah. to kind of be unearthed. Sure. Yeah, for sure. Like there could not even, be, there may not even be grapes planted yeah. in, in, in the vineyard that's going to make the best Grenache or the best Syrah or the best Pinot Noir. You know, do you know what I mean? It could be Virginia. It could be, well, probably won't be Virginia. Um, <laughs> but it, there's a lot of places it could be. Yeah. So um, one of the things I wanted to ask you guys is how have you found in different markets? Because you, you travel a lot and your wines are in many different markets. Have there been some markets over others, either within the U.S. or international, that were that kind of caught on faster than some spots? Because obviously here in the U.K., it's been a fairly recent phenomenon in the last, I would say, you know, five years or so, where you know the um, new wave or you know John Bonnet's new California wines have really taken off, and guys I, like Mark. Know, uh, our biggest market is New York, uh, and since we only make two grape varieties. So our, our stylistic wines are very much like narrow. So, so uh, we are, uh, there's more excitement of our wines in UK, Norway, Sweden, Denmark than in California or anywhere, anywhere in the States. It's pretty humbling to see, to you know, see your wine on a wine list in Paris or in Champagne or in London or in best restaurants in Stockholm and Copenhagen, that kind of stuff. So it's a, and, and I think it's not, it's not necessarily about me or us. It's, I think, very exciting with California or Oregon that you represent an entire generation of producers and growers. And I think to also kind of hopefully uh, a message for them is that, that, that your wines are, you know, in our wines as a state or an appellation is global. It's not something, you know, because back in the day, and any even small appellations in France or even Europe, you sold your wines only in your in your village or in your area because shipping wasn't easy. 
unless you're near a river or on the, on the coast. But to see that, you know, a little wine from uh, Santa Barbara or Eagle Avenue Hills or Sonoma Coast is being served at top restaurants around the world is kind of exciting. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, the, the Oregon project, that's fairly recent. You guys took that over in, what, 2014? Yeah. It was the first, first vintage? Yeah. What was it, what, had you had in your mind that you wanted to no. get involved in Oregon or was, no, how did that come it, about? No, it was just, uh, so the, the, so all this, like, if I, and we don't, we don't have time to go through the whole detail, but all this, these wine projects and wineries, we, we, we are partners and make the wine, all happened by chance. It wasn't like I sat one day and said, I want to make wine. I want to make wine. No, it didn't happen that way, because it happened like, yeah, I want to make a little bit of wine, just kind of play around. And then, then you find a vineyard, oh yeah, that's a cool vineyard, and that's a cool vineyard. And then so that, you know, so we found Domingo de la Cote, and that was, and the, the same person who owned Domingo de la Cote was a majority partner in, in the Seven Springs estate. Okay. So he kind of offered us first right, you, you want to take over this the vineyard? And we're like, uh, let me see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Seven Springs is like pretty, oh, yeah. pretty historic so, in yeah, the region exactly. too, you talk to anybody. Exactly, so we're like, you know, and it's, uh, it's definitely the most challenging, challenging thing we've ever done because it's, uh, some vines have phylloxera and are kind of dying or dead, some are being replanted, some are mid-age, so it's like a puzzle. So it's, it's, uh, it's definitely uh, the most uh, challenging uh, compared to anything else we've ever done, so on many different levels. Very cool. And also in Oregon, who the hell knows what Oregon is? I mean, we barely know California, so Oregon is still very new. First vines were only planted in 66. So it's, even though people recognize it, but it's not like, you know. I don't know, maybe it's a luck thing that or it's the fact that you travel to Europe and you travel around the world for your own curiosity, for your own palate and interest. And um, I feel, I, as a consumer and, and someone who lives in the UK, I feel, I feel that there's a big movement about wine, American wines in general. Um, California is one highlight because everybody knows about California, but Oregon, Washington, New York, and yeah. Yeah. all the other side is... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's it. I mean you, you're working with wines from kind of coast to coast. Um, what, and you're, you know, you're with Psalms on a daily basis. What's the, is there any kind of um, headline headlines you can take away from kind of what you've seen happen in the last few years in terms of presenting the wines and how they're received or yeah. um, if there's been a change in, t change in tune to like the on-trades perspective or perception of what's right. going on from the States? There's a big um, movement about quality wines. I don't want to put just biodynamic or natural or organic label on it, but um, just really well-made wine. And from the iPub and from other producers, we see... Um, we see just more elegant wines compared to uh, very oaky, full-on, yes. more traditional Californian wines coming. And the emergence uh, of uh, Trousseau Gris, Trousseau in general, Chenin, just, you know, coming yeah. out of that yeah. Pinot Noir Chardonnay, Capsule mm -hmm. from Napa yeah. uh, a spectrum, where suddenly there's a lot more coming up from there. So people start digging. And yeah, curiosity comes in and people just start looking for more and more wine. So what's out there really? Um, I think uh, American wines, when you look at what's going on with, within Burgundy with the pricing, um, I think nowadays if you want to have, um, you, it's same, same in terms of 
prices for restaurants. Um, that's why there's a lot more interest for putting an American Chardonnay that's elegant um, by the glass as much as there was back then when they wanted to put a Chassagne or a Puligny or things like that. that people don't want to look for just a Rulli or, or a Pouilly, even though people like French, even though the final consumer likes French. Yep. Um, you look at alternatives where you find um, something that gives you a lot of pleasure, a lot of texture, and it's, you can have a glass and another glass and, and then end up having a bottle instead of having a palate that gets tired. Yes. I think more than, more than ever, people are receptive to the wines can be anywhere. It just matters what's in the glass when they get it too. Mm -hmm. People are happy to drink wine from anywhere. The, if they're buying you know, Bulgarian wine from a Canadian, I mean, that must say something, right? I mean, what's that? The uh, one of the things I want to ask you too. So you touched on this earlier when you said that you let the interns make some pet nat, and I mean, is this is this kind of an I don't know if this is an American thing or is there like because I buy the La Quadrilla yes. from Stoltman from you guys yeah. as well. I mean, commercializing or like putting wines to market that you kind of let the interns play with is that like is that is that La Quadrilla is is from the wine growers, but but yeah, yeah, same same. Sure. No, I mean it's the same. I mean it's a team effort. I mean yeah, obviously well, the interns sure. are just I mean, like. Tucks in the corner, but I think it's really cool. I, I love it. Like you know, so we have uh, we have most of my interns come from Europe. Uh, so like in fourteen, we had some uh, we had two different interns, both from Burgundy. Both one worked for a fancy domain and one had worked for fancy domain. Like like, so we had some extra some extra fruit. So I said I gave them both the tank. I said you play with this, you play with that. And our, to our top vineyard, not like, like not like scraps off. No, no, it was like Lakota and Bloomsfield. You have tank each, and you guys can do whatever you want to do. Just tell us what you're doing, so we at least <laughs> know. Because you know, experimenting with you know, it's 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 fun. But our world is so like you know, we don't add any sulfur, we don't add any any additives, so, so we we can't. So I let him add sulfur if you wanted to. I let him flambe the tank if you wanted to. I let him do as many pump or punch down because you know. And it was fascinating to see that two of two wines of our single vineyard from Zumba were made in a very different way and did not have our in the beginning. And then after Elevage, before we bottled it, the wine was, you know, pretty close to what we what had done. So you know, this is fun. It's just you know, it's, it's, you can't do it every year, but you can if you have the right. If you got an abundant. You know, you have the, you have the right intern. You have you know, we, you know, it's it's just always. You have the right, you know, last year we had, uh, you know, Louis Gimonet from Champagne. One year we had uh, the son, Guillaume Monnier from Monnier Perol in Saint Joseph. And, you know, different people. Yeah, it's not some kid at the bus stop you picked up. <laughs> no, no, it, you know, it's, but, it's, but I think that you're in the wild, wild west in California. We can do stuff and we can, and we can learn from, from people. Uh, yeah. Thinking outside the box. Uh, oh, for sure. I love, I love that. I mean, a friend of mine who um, from Burgundy that uh, that we work we worked with, he interned with a company that uh, we worked with, and it was interesting to me. He had an, I won't say the name of the domain, but I mean it was top you know top ten domain in in um, in, in and um, um, it was uh, he was like yeah I could have interned there. He was like but essentially it was like don't touch anything, don't screw anything up, and like just you put on your CV that you were here. Yeah. And um, he's like that's great, but you know. Obviously, it's a it's a it's a great honor to have the opportunity to work with someone as iconic as that. But you know, it's like I want to go and you know mess around and burn, <laughs> sorry, burn some chickens. I got to find a new analogy to go back to. But you 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 you, you, you dig it for me. Um, and 
you know, I just, that's, I think that spirit of that kind of, uh, yeah. that openness to kind of um, play with it is really, it's, it's, that's kind of a special thing that's maybe a bit overlooked sometimes. And, and um, um, you know, some of those experiments turn out to be, as you're pretty close to the, uh, the designed sure. effort and, uh, and you know, or some good, some fantastic wine that uh, oh, yeah. is, is celebrated and that I, I'm happy to show. Sure, like, like our travels through Europe, you know, we've learned things and we're going to go and check them out. I'm sure we're going to, and then, you know, I'll call middle of Harvard, call Fax and say, hey, what did he say again? Or did he, did he do this? And like, or I'll call the producer directly and say, is this how you were doing it? And, you know, that, it's just, is the world is much more, Definitely. you know, closer than it used to be. I, our first three vintages, I used to call Jean-Marc Rouleau and Harvest and ask him before. Like, it was just because you're lucky to have someone who knows <laughs> much more than you, and then you, and they're willing to share, and and that's just that's just the way it is. It's, it's just our experience in Savoie. I think it changed. We both have mondos in the ground, and you know now we know when you make mondos, we like hey, we, we now we know how these guys make the mondos and in the place where mondos is grown, and and. We, of course, it won't be the same mandus, but at least we know how they do it, yeah. and maybe it works for us, maybe it doesn't. You know, it's good to know how the classics are played, yes? Right? Um, yeah. Before you can start, you know, improvising jazz, you need to know, like, you know, you have to have a, a very strong basic in music, and, and um, you know, in, in, you know, early Pinot Noirs and Cabernets in California, it was like Cabernets and Napa were like, okay, what do they do in Bordeaux? They pick at this, they do this, they use this type of barrel, they add this much sulfur, that's how we're gonna make our wines, because how Bordeaux does it. It took, Calif it took Napa a long time to figure out that uh, two things, that if they went too far, um, that wasn't a good thing, and if they um, kind of stuck with the model, that it wasn't such a bad thing, but they need to kind of adapt it to their their particular site and vineyard. I mean, a lot. You, I mean, the early Pinot Noirs were made like Cabernet. They were pumped over. They were very hard. They tasted. Closed they closed tanks. Yeah, there were there. Nobody took the bother to go spend. I mean, that nobody took the bother other than Jim Clendenin to go spend a lot of time in Burgundy and bring those techniques and all of these things that these people had spent generations figuring out. And so, you know, Raj and I did not spend generations in Savoie. We spent four days. But, um, you know, we're bringing back, and, you know, and we drink these wines, and so we understand the concept of the vinification that's taking place. And now we have the, like, hands-on kind of idea of exactly what the vinification is to kind of do that and to fill the blank in. And so we're going to bring that back and kind of, and I guarantee the Monduses that are come out of his cellar and come out of my cellar, is Monduses a word? Um, yes. It is now, yeah. <laughs> I guarantee that those wines are going to be in the spirit of what we tasted in the Savoie. For sure. I mean, uh, there's are there are mandus made in California, but they're not being made in this traditional mandu style. They're being made in a California style, which is fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, exactly. But what our you goal? Want homage to well, that's not an homage. homage inspiration our, from someone who's our our homage to these people is to learn how not to burn the chicken. Sorry. Yeah. Nice callback. But, 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 but like in five years from now, we both are going to have our versions of Shannon, yeah, Mondo's, Pulsard, Gamay, Trousseau, all Red, all the stuff. Yeah, we have all the things planted Love in different, different soils and, and some co-planted, some not, some different things. And because we drink so much of these wines and, and, and in small quantities, but it'll be fun to kind of come back and taste, you know, yeah. taste these wines. 
And I think it's really cool because it kind of weaves back together this kind of global tapestry of, you know, when we look at the, in the grand scheme of the amount of wine that's drank in the world, I mean, yes. we're talking, the artisanal wine accounts for such a small measure of it. And when you plant, you know, Poussard or Trousseau or, or Mondeuse and you talk about Belvoir or uh, Miroir and Jura or, um, you know, whoever it is that is somewhere along the way inspired you, I mean, it, it's just kind of circling and perpetuating a, a celebration of some of these, you know, tiny wines that, you know, we'll never be able to drink. And when you can maybe tell the story through yeah. your wine, and give a little yeah. wink at something. Sure. I think it's a pretty powerful. It's a it. uh, and it's happening in other places, not just California. It's happening in Australia and South Africa. South Africa. So it's it's a it's 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 a global Galicia. thing. Galicia. Yeah, it's it's just, it's just. I mean. I mean. It's even happening. And it's funny that that in the Savoie, so Granger never left uh, the town of Ice, where where Meloard is, and now he's going to give it to somebody else in another part. Of the Savoie. That's a big deal. Like, That's a big deal. You're moving from, so you know, it's like, I mean, it's, it's, it's just, you know, I mean, and, and I mean, it's, it's just what Trousseau is. Trousseau is not even a Jura grape, it's a Galitian grape. Yeah. And, but the world doesn't know. I mean, oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's like, yeah, Pulsar is from Poupillon. But Trousseau came somehow through somebody else. Yeah, I mean, there's Bastardo in Portugal. Yeah, so, I mean, it's. So, uh, yeah, exactly. But, but there's so many different names they have in. in uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's just. And, and it's, you know, a, a lot, you know, internet, you, what you're doing, other people who are talking about different things and talking to different people. And, you know, it's, 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 all, it's all a spiral mm -hmm. movement. Cool. Well, thank you guys. Well, I think on that, that's probably a good place to cheers. And cheers, yeah. thanks to you guys cheers. for being with cheers. us. Thank thanks for coming down, sharing some, some really cool wines and yeah, some very you. rare wines as well. And um, it's, uh, it's always nice to crack up wines with great people. And um, thanks to Zav and um, the team here at Comptoir Cafe for hosting us. Sure, and, um, for sure. um, we'll try not to drink all of the Rouleau. <laughs> Again. 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 <laughs> cheers, guys. Thanks. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please take a moment to give a review online, and please share this episode with your friends.